Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. And good morning. Good morning, Dr. Ira. We have an incredibly special guest today. Tell us who it is. You know, I, I am. But I want to preface it by saying, when I go out of town, I like to look at statues and monuments and ivory towers. And our guest today is just like an ivory tower. He's an icon. <laughs> Don't laugh. Stay with me, folks. Don't laugh. Stay okay, with okay, me. Okay. I'm, let me. Let me go through I'm, my I'm thought, on tight. perseverance Get us on this. There, Ira. <laughs> because our guest is an icon at what he does. He's the ivory tower of outpatient addiction. And I'm glad to welcome to our show, he's very tough to get, Dr. Charles Buscema. Good morning, Dr. Buscema. Good mo- good morning, Ira. Thank you very much for that uh, introduction. <laughs> <laughs> he's at a loss for words. You know, I, I noticed you had to pause and say, well, is, was that really an introduction? A uh, little self-editing going on, yeah. But, but Dr. Buscema is a renowned psychiatrist in the area. He's worked both in inpatient rehabilitation and outpatient rehabilitation. He's done psychiatric care. He's done addiction. He's worked with the prison system. I I can't even begin to tell you everything he's done. So I want to introduce him again, Dr. Charles Buscema, and tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to Stewart, Port St. Lucie, Florida. Well, I uh, actually went through a six-year biomedical program, and part of it was an engineering school, which was probably the most difficult thing I had in my entire career, was learning how to do calculus and uh, quantum physics. But I graduated in um, 1974. I worked on an alcohol unit in a general hospital, and we started seeing psychiatric patients who were in a medical setting. Um, I then went on to uh, work for New York State. Uh, I took a forensic fellowship for two years at Syracuse and ended up uh, teaching some law courses there. And I was uh, fortunate enough to work as the director of psychiatry for the New York State prison system. And um, we introduced some cutting-edge drugs to the system, uh, that uh, like Clazaril for schizophrenia, that really made a, a, an impact on uh, the, the quality of treatment in that particular environment. So um, in 2007, I moved to Florida. And uh, the reason I moved to Florida was to become the medical director of New Horizons of the Treasure Coast, which is up in Fort Pierce, I worked there for five years. The The reason behind the reason was my wife has, my wife's sister lives in Port St. Lucie. So we uh, decided to look for uh, positions in the immediate area. But I'm working now in Palm Beach Gardens as well as Port St. Lucie. And um, uh, this is a, a great state and it's a great place to live and work. Was there somewhere along the line of your four decades of experience that you said, this is my aha moment. This was the defining moment for you that this is what I want to do. I I think I've had two of them. I, I've published a couple of pocket guides for corrections that were really breakthrough publications at the time, and it reformed uh, a lot of the systems because uh, the prison system was operating below the uh, standard of care for the outside community. The other um, uh, moment was I realized that um, we weren't accomplishing the kinds of purposes that were um, uh, our goals and objectives because we were detoxing uh, uh, patients who were addicted to opiates or alcohol, but particularly opiates. 
and um, these people like weren't viewed in the in the medical model. They 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 were not seen as having brain disorders. I think the major breakthrough is the fact that uh, these individuals have brain disorders, and it's okay to identify them that way. Uh, we did that with schizophrenia. We've done that with Alzheimer's disease, and we've made the treatment uh, commensurate with the degree of disability and the degree of, of brain disorder. Now, providing uh, patients with uh, an extension of their detoxification by giving them um, low-dose medications like Suboxone um, actually like reduces the recidivism and relapse rate in um, inpatient units by about 45-50%. I think we're going from 75% readmission within a year to about 30% readmission. This is called MAT, medication-assisted treatment. And it's MAT implies the fact that behavioral treatments and also training in terms of environmental cueing, um, which people commonly refer to as triggers, uh, that's all taken into account. It's a comprehensive approach. So we're here today talking with Dr. Charles Buscema, who's telling us a little bit about um, how he got started in the field of correction medicine, addiction medicine. Can you tell us what you do now? What do, what do you do every day? What is your practice like? Do you have multiple positions within your practice? What do you do? I have a, a large practice in Port St. Lucie, and it's an office-based practice. And I, I see people who are stable now. Uh, when they come in there, they're perhaps withdrawing from, from something, but we stabilize them if they don't need inpatient. I do almost all of my work in the office, and I see them on a, every two week or every monthly basis. We do urine testing. We, we make sure they're going to NA or AA, and um, that's part of what I do. The other part is that we just opened an outpatient MAT program in Palm Beach Gardens. And um, that's really innovative because as we've looked and there aren't any programs in Florida that uh, are, are analogous. There, There is one in New Hampshire and there's one in Ohio and there's one in uh, Massachusetts. And uh, those are the um, uh, programs that we initially reviewed and, and kind of based our, our outpatient MAT program around. So you're seeing patients in your office as, as outpatients who are addicted to some form of drug and also alcoholism? Some of them are um, recovering alcoholics. Most of them are recovering opiate addicts. And they're getting to you by way of self-referral or do they come through another program or is it varied? It's varied. Uh, we get some referrals from programs, but my greatest referral source is other patients. Mm -hmm. That's great. So if you've just joined us, we're talking to Dr. Charles Buscema, psychiatrist and addiction specialist with alternatives for you in Palm Beach Gardens and in Port St. Lucie, Florida, actually in St. Lucie West. And if you have any questions about that, give us a call right now. We're live at 772-220-WSTU. That's 772-220-9788. And you had mentioned that you had worked in the prison system. And there's so many television shows like Orange is the New Black and, uh, uh, Deadwood that deal with uh, addiction and drugs. And I want to go back to your experience in the prison system for just a little, little bit. Incarcerated citizens that have been incarcerated for drug addiction, do they get good treatment in prison? So far, we haven't uh, seen any comprehensive treatment. There are uh, programs, abstinence-based programs, where they receive counseling. Uh, two, two examples I can think of are uh, the Martin County and the St. Lucie County jail systems. But they're not receiving the recognition that has to be made by every all facets of society. The recognition is that... Um, 
we're dealing with a brain disorder and you, you, you providing people with abstinence based groups and um, referring them uh, after they're, they're, they're released from jail or released from prison is not sufficient to, to address the problem. We, we need to treat these people, these inmates while they're in, uh, while they're incarcerated or prior to incarceration. I know Palm Beach County is setting up a diversion program where their pretrial detainees can have the option of completing a program where they receive treatment, direct treatment from addictionologists and uh, nurse practitioners, caseworkers, and group leaders. They attend 12-step uh, or uh, non-faith-based programs, and uh, the, uh, the outcomes are much better. We've observed much better outcomes when this uh, problem is treated uh, as a, in the medical model as opposed to you know, this is a, 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 a something that is a, a a defect that dwells within the person. It's a personality disorder. It's a violation of cultural and social norms. It's it's it has to do with a, a brain disorder. It's, it has to do with impaired uh, uh, parts of the brain, and it needs to be treated as such. So should the criminal justice system be removed from managing our addicted population if no other crime has been committed? And the second part to that question is, why did Palm Beach County adopt such a program? And how do we get Martin and St. Lucie counties to follow suit? I think historically Palm Beach County has been thinking about diverting patients for treatment in lieu of criminal, you know, criminal prosecution for several years. There are some individuals in, 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 in Palm Beach County um, who have run programs. Um, it's called Drug Farms, I believe, their program. And um, uh, Major Alexander uh, Freeman was one of the principal individuals who promoted that uh, particular program. Um, could you repeat the beginning of that question again? Absolutely. I'm glad I wrote that one down. Uh, should the criminal justice system be removed from managing our addictive population if no other crime's been committed? We want to work in conjunction with, with corrections. We don't want to remove them from the loop, but we want to work with them. And I, I think that Palm Beach County uh, is on the same wavelength. Uh, they're in the treatment loop as opposed to the punitive loop. Now we're talking about people who commit misdemeanors like simple possession with no uh, violent acts or aggressive acts associated, and they're not being charged with felonies. So you're you're talking to us right now about the way that the criminal justice system kind of handles drug addiction in correlation with a committed crime. But I think a lot of you also just mentioned that there's this huge social norm that dictates how we as a society view drug addicts or addicts of any kind. And can you just tell me a little bit about your philosophy of people who have addiction? Because, you know, I, I, I'm a primary care doctor, so I see a lot of patients who have relatives who are addicted to one substance or another. And it's, they're so, they are trying to balance this um, feeling of shame and feeling that there must be something wrong with, with their loved one that they could fall victim to addiction. It, are we all vic potential victims of addiction? Well, I don't think we're, we're um, everyone has a different uh, propensity for addiction. I think it depends to a great deal on the genetic loading. In other words, how much, how many of your relatives were um, opiate or alcohol uh, addicted? And um, the more genetic loading, the more likely it is that you'll develop that disorder. Um, there's a lot of um, uh, speculation as to how it starts. It's probably a, a, a defect in a part of the brain. Forgive me for getting technical, but the mesolimbic part of the brain. Those have uh, a lot of dopamine tracks. And if the 
transmission isn't proper in these tracks. The rewards center is, we, we all have a, a, a reward center. When drugs light up the reward center and there's a switch, metaphorically a switch there, in most individuals who are not addicted, that switch opens when you break your arm and it closes after the pain goes away, and you don't want opiates anymore, you know, or people just say it's a simple extraction of a tooth. I don't need opiates. Some people, once the switch opens, and these are the individuals who have a propensity for opiate addiction or opiate use disorder. Uh, i got to update everything. But uh, opiate use disorder, uh, these people have switches that stick, they metaphorically they stay open and, and there's a constant call for more drugs. The cravings occur despite the fact the pain no longer exists. So do you do you have an, a, a problem with the phrase an addictive personality? Because that's what's coming to mind. People say that all the time. Is is this kind of what they're talking yeah. about? In today's um, uh, verbiage and in, in, in today's understanding of 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 what addiction means and how it happens and what contribute contributes to it addictive personality really doesn't mean anything Mm -hmm. you know it wouldn't be nice if we could develop a drug to totally suppress the reward center only for opiates or develop some type of deep brain stimulation similar to what we use in parkinson's patients to zap the just that part of the reward center, if we can do brain mapping. Are you aware of any research being done in that area? Yeah, there's research being done at Mount Sinai in utero with um, uh, defective genes for uh, opiates. And what what the future holds is probably gene editing or some form of... uh, uh, stem cell therapy, and, 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 and perhaps we can even short-circuit this kind of problem prior to birth. So there, so it seems to be an ongoing area. You know, when, when drug-addicted patients come into my office, they seem to be more demanding. They want what they want, and they will lie to you. They will give you any excuse possible to get what they want, even placing the blame on the, the the physician, Leanne, do you do you see a lot of that in your office? Yeah, so it's not that I see it in my office, but I do kind of feel like um, there's a new social trend, I suppose. For it, it feels like the media has made the doctor out to be a big player in the opiate crisis, and um, I kind of it kind of bugs me. I mean, I, I recognize that there are definitely physicians sitting in a room somewhere just churning out signed scripts. But, you know, it offends me when I feel like the media is making it seem like I'm not offering alternatives to opiates. Well, and- well, well here's what bugs me. And it's and it's a pet peeve. And, and, and it's let me let me get on my soapbox for just a second here, because this this really makes me animated. Number one, the American Medical Association several years ago, felt that pain, even though pain is subjective and not objective, it cannot be measured, should be the sixth vital sign. But various legislative bodies said that you as a physician are responsible for controlling the patient's pain. And if you don't control the patient's pain, adequately, according to the patient, then you're liable and that's a reportable event. At the same time, and we're going back about a decade ago, various pharmaceutical companies came up with newer and better opiates, or at least they were supposed to be newer and better with both agonistic, meaning they work, and antagonistic effects, meaning you don't get addicted to this. Lie, because you do get addicted to this. And then they came up with a whole body of support for using opiates, and then opiates became overused. People were becoming addicted to opiates, pull back, 
We don't want doctors using opiates. And more than doctors using opiates, dentists are probably the largest prescriber of opiates and of anyone in the medical profession. So my question to Dr. Busema is, how do we sort this mess out? How do we become more like a European society where they don't use opiates at all? What are better alternatives? And how do you advise both patients and physicians and dentists to prescribe appropriately? Well, I, I, uh, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. So take any part of that. A you lot want. to unpack. I think that uh, dentists need to realize that an extraction doesn't require 10 days of uh, oxycodone. So their practices have to change. Um, we um, don't have a lot of uh, substitute analgesics, but there are other modalities of pain relief, like lidocaine patches. Um, there's physical therapy. Um, there, are, there are all kinds of alternatives to, to, to opiates. Um, the people, despite the physician's advice for another modality who insist on opiates are probably like, uh, have some kind of opiate dependence or, um, some kind of, uh, cravings for opiates. There are always alternatives except like for acute trauma or acute surgery. Um, we, we have to understand about, uh, opiate, uh, uh, use disorder is it's a chronic uh, relapsing disease. It isn't something that uh, you you treat once and it goes away like an infected gallbladder. It's something that you diminish the amount of medications, opiate medications that a patient uses. Then you enter a period of abstinence, which you lengthen as much as possible. You try to to maintain that abstinence for, for long periods of time. And when the patients do relapse, and they will, um, you treat that quickly, effectively, and get them back on the right road again. Society thinks nothing of uh, hypertensive uh, crises or relapses, and, and people have diabetic problems uh, that, that you know, require hospitalization and specialized treatment. And yet when someone relapses on opiates, it's looked at as some kind of characterologic deficit, a weakness. These, this isn't a weakness. It's a, it's a disease. So how do you define, I'm sorry, for, for the listeners that may have no personal experience with uh, addiction, um, you know, we know that many people today who are needing chronic opioid therapy are going to a pain management physician. Um, how, what defines an addict? Like, I mean, is it the self-definition? Does a patient have to say, it appears that I am dependent upon the substance and I don't want to be? Because I think there are a lot of people who have family members who are getting their medications and taking their medications exactly as prescribed who may feel that there is an underlying dependency. Well, I think that if you take a high enough uh, dosage of opiates for a long enough period of time, like you can define that as being physically dependent, which is, you know, a step away from, I guess, addiction. addiction. But um, people who don't have pain and, and, who, and who crave opiates and are treating it, um, uh, those are the people that you would say are probably addicted to it. And, and there's no underlying uh, etiology or cause for it to be used. Um, I mean, people in hospice certainly need opiates because of the pain. And, and it's identifiable like this cancer or whatever. But there are a lot of people who, who uh, simply want opiates because they're addicted. Mm -hmm. We're, we're going to need to take a commercial break. If you've just joined us, we're listening to Dr. Charles Buscema right here on Paradox. We're talking about drug addiction in our show, Get the Needle Out of Your Arm. We want you to call in right after this break. We'll be right back.
And we're back. And if you've just joined us uh, here on Paradox, we're talking to Dr. Charles Buscema today on our show, Take the Needle Out of Your Arm. Uh, Dr. Buscema uh, has recently started a new outpatient treatment program with medication-assisted therapy. Uh, His uh, practice is called Alternas for You, both in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, and in St. Lucie, West Florida. And we're very lucky to have him today. And I want to open up by asking him a question about recidivism. For those of you that don't know what that means, that means relapse rates. When someone is treated both inpatient-wise for drug addiction versus outpatient-wise for drug addiction under your program, what are those relapse rates? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, let me just first say, uh, Ira, that the conventional relapse rate with inpatient um, rehabilitation was about 75% after one year. Um, We looked at that and we said, there has to be a way of doing better. And the way of doing better was the way that SAMHSA proposed, which was continuing these patients on low-dose Suboxone and following them after they leave treatment. There were just too many people who were returning within a, a given period of time. And we, we felt like if we followed them outpatient, the, the people who uh, were going to do well would, would, would be able to benefit from just coming in three times a week for three hours a day, getting all their programming done within a 10-week period of time. Now, not only does that benefit the outcome, it it, uh, reduces uh, relapse. Uh, These patients are able to continue working at their jobs. They can go home with their families, which are generally supportive units. They can eat at home. They can sleep at home. The program is far, far less expensive than conventional rehabilitation facilities because uh, we're not housing these people, we're not transporting these patients, and we're not feeding these patients. So we can uh, provide a, 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 a program that most people can afford, whereas the, the, the astronomical costs of conventional rehab prior to that was prohibitive. And once they um, uh, f- finish our, our our program and they return to the community, we're going to provide them with outpatient office treatment. So we'll be their doctor as long as they wish us to be. So it'll be like a a loop or a circle. Suboxone for how long? And explain to our listening audience what Suboxone is. Suboxone is actually two drugs in, in, in one. One is buprenorphine, which is a well, it's a partial agonist. It's It confuses the brain into thinking the patient is on opiates. The other half of that medication is naloxone, which is pretty much a, a blocker. Although it downregulates the rewards center, it's pretty much of a blocker. When you put those two together, it, may, it has the ideal effect of you can't even inject it because it would uh, result in like uh, massive withdrawal. Um, so I think that uh, Suboxone is uh, one of the uh, long-term solutions. It has a lot less uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome than um, uh, methadone does, which has been used in the past. So. I'm sorry. No. So I have a question. I have a question. Um, So you're talking right now about an outpatient uh, treatment program for opiate addicted patients. Uh, For people that are listening and do not have experience, what is detox versus ongoing treatment? Because we we use that like we know what it means, and I don't think we do. Detox is when someone's on a high dosage of uh, an illicit drug. uh, usually heroin could be dilaudid, uh and, and um, uh, sometimes it's just Suboxone and they can't lower the dose after a couple of years. So they come in and, 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 and we can detox them off that and, and start all over again with uh, maybe Vivitrol, which is another 
medication that's used for opiate dependence or abstinence, you know, and, and we, we would uh, provide the programming for them. But detox is when someone has uh, a physically dependent uh, disorder, like the, the amount of drug that they're taking into their system is can't just be discontinued spontaneously. It requires ongoing monitoring and treatment. And that is the same protocol for um, alcohol addiction, that they would potentially need to go through a detox program before they landed in a long-term outpatient treatment program? Usually alcohol requires inpatient because there's a risk of seizures, DTs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what's the time frame, right? Because alcoholism, I think, is a little bit more tangible to the everyday person because maybe there's more alcoholics that uh, are functional. Um, um, what is the time frame for an alcohol detox? Well, about depending on the amount of alcohol ingested per day, it's usually about eight to twelve days. So a patient could potentially go to a detox center for eight to twelve days, uh, get off of the alcohol, you know, less more safely, and then enroll in an outpatient treatment program and still continue to work and carry on with their lives. Yeah. And you can conduct their follow-up treatment uh, like a MAT program because there are medications that uh, tend to reduce cravings for alcohol and have like 70% uh, 70% abstinence rates over a one-year period. And that's much better than uh, AA. And what would those meds be? Well, one of them is naltrexone, uh, which is an oral blocker, and it, it uh, diminishes the cravings because it downregulates the reward system. The other one is naltrexone ER, which is given in IM form once a month in a doctor's That office. means by shot, by injection. Yeah, intramuscular, sorry. Um, there's Campril, uh, which you can take orally, and that has effects on various systems. Uh, the GABA system, the glutamate system. There are um, antabuse has kind of fallen out of favor because it actually requires the uh, patient to drink and they become quite ill. So you just mentioned briefly AA, and I think that that's that's something that a lot of people have heard of. Um, AA is a, a voluntary program that people can go to. It's a group a group system of therapy. What what are your opinions about uh, how necessary that type of psychological support is? Maybe you could tell us what you think about AA or other types. And is that important? Do people need to do that? I think they need to hear from uh, peers and develop a peer support system because the people that they were um, interacting with prior to that were were all drinking probably. and, And that's People usually drink around peers. So you want to develop a new peer circle with people who are abstinent. AA does a really nice job of that. And like there's kind of like a, a certain amount of camaraderie there. Uh, and they have pins for five years, 10 years, 20 years. So it, it's a, in and of itself, it's supposedly the most po- successful group in, in world history. Everyone, there's an AA meeting going on everywhere at at any time. So what what are the problems of AA? They've tended to wear blinders with respect to Matt. They think that using drugs are are just using another drug to replace alcohol. They have not seen alcohol as a brain disorder. And I think that's the fallacy. That's really the reason we haven't succeeded in putting a better dent in opiates and and, and alcohol and and other drugs. Um, Trying to prevent people from getting drugs is something that people have done for thousands of years, and it hasn't met with a great deal of success. If you want to get drugs, if you want to get alcohol, you can always do so. It's what as a society, how do we respond to people who are addicted? And the first step in that process is acknowledging the fact that they have a brain disease. And I know I've said this 15 times so far. But it means that it's important. So it, we're all hearing right, it. Right, and we're yeah. listening to it. 
AA and NA, which would be Narcotics Anonymous, and and they're very similar. I, I'm sure that NA is based on the principles of AA. Do you encourage all of your patients to work through a 12-step program as outlined in Alcoholics Anonymous? Absolutely. I think it's important for them to, to say, you know, humble themselves and acknowledge the fact that uh, they have no control over this. And they, whether you do faith-based and you say you have to turn to God or whether you have to, you know, discover the strength in, within you and develop other um, uh, techniques of avoiding alcohol or drugs, um, uh, smart recovery will do that. Now, which do you find more difficult to treat, alcoholics or narcotic addicts, or are they the same? Well, they're about the same with the exception that alcohol is legal and readily available on, on almost any corner of any city. So, and it's socially acceptable. It isn't stigmatized, whereas the Lord and heroin, like, uh, they are stigmatized. Somebody uh, is using heroin, they're, you know, drug addicts, that drug addict. And if they're drinking, well, he drinks socially or she drinks socially. And people drink alcohol on, on television all the time. Mm. I mean, that's common. So we've sort of been desensitized to the use of alcohol, but we still maintain this huge stigma about narcotics. But you don't have you don't you can't draw any generalizations between uh, alcohol addicted patients versus nar narcotic addicted patients. They they're generally the same kind of people. They just fell in love with a different drug. Um. Well, I wouldn't say that. I I, I probably uh, think that alcoholics. Um. Well, Actually, I think they tend to do better in, in, in AA than um, uh, narcotics, uh, narcotic dependent people do in NA. Mm -hmm. um, Why do you I, suppose that is? They're, they're a little older. They recognize the consequences of alcohol. They've seen like their health deteriorate, their family leave, their employment is not, doesn't exist anymore. Friends and family are gone. Their whole support system is gone. They've gen they generally lose everything. Now, people on narcotics do too, but I, I think that um, alcoholics realize this is the time to change. So I'm, I'm hearing dual diagnosis from you. I'm hearing there's concurrent depression, anxiety, uh, perhaps an underlying grief reaction, uh, an adjustment disorder that often leads people to either drug or alcohol addiction. Do you treat both? Yes. There's a high rate of comorbidity, and it's usually psychiatric disorder, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 85 percent. Now, that can the, the comorbid disorders can uh, either precipitate the uh, addictive disorder. For example, females in whom this is uh, higher than males, like uh, they peak out at age 12 with social anxiety disorders, and what they turn to is alcohol. Um, there are all kinds of uh, uh, triggers for opiates and alcohol, including anxiety, depression, bipolar, PTSD, the incidence of uh, abuse and emotional, physical, and sexual in childhood is about 75% in females. Males are less reticent to talk about being abused in childhood, particularly sexual abuse, but that's changing. But I would still say that runs about 65% in male patients. If you've just joined us, this is Paradox. Our guest this morning is Dr. Charles Buscema alcohol addiction, uh, narcotic addiction specialist, and our show is Take the Needle Out of Your Arm. You can call in if you have any questions right here at WSTU, 772-220-9788. And our chief engineer, 
Frank Mazapel has a question for Dr. Bichon. Yes. So, so you mentioned the term comorbidity. So I just want to fully understand what that means as a layperson. Comorbidity is you have a principal disorder or problem identified, which is like alcohol use disorder or opiate use disorder. And then as you talk with the patient, you discover that there's another layer of pathology, yeah. and that tends to be uh, in the mental health uh, arena. And so you, 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 you diagnose that and you propose treatment because a lot of people do correlate their, you know, the exacerbation of their mental health problem with the, with, with, with the relapse. Ah. Um, now, I was going to say earlier and, 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 and didn't really get around to that. This is really like a two-way street. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the drug or the alcohol like, could be precipitated by the underlying psychological disorder, but using drugs over a period of time will cause patients to become depressed or anxious or even, you know, have mood swings that resemble bipolar disorder. Yeah. So one can cause the other, and in turn, like the use can exacerbate the mental health problem. So Dr. Pusama, I have a question. Um, you had mentioned that one of the reasons why you advocate for your program, the program that you use, uh, medication-assisted um, outpatient therapy, is because of a cost differential. Um, I think patients know that detox and treatment is expensive. I don't know that anybody knows how expensive. Can you tell us what are, what are, what is the typical program cost, and does insurance pay for that? Um, insurance is uh, becoming increasingly uh, uh, restrictive in what they pay. They're, they're beginning to regard a lot of the conventional um, rehab programs as having a lot of uh, unnecessary parts to it, like gourmet chefs and visits to the beach and, you know, movies. And you really don't see the doctor more than about 20 to 30 minutes a week anyway. Um, our, 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 our program uh, eliminates visits to the beach and, and, and all the, quote, fluff that goes in, into some of the conventional programs. The conventional programs used to be able to bill about 30000 a month for the treatment. And, for example, Florida Blue Cross Blue Shield just reduced that to about four or 5000 a month. Some of them are, are not paying for residential, which is a interim between detox and, and PHP. Um, we're trying to do a no-frills program where we provide solid treatment, solid follow-up, develop client-friendly client, well, client -friendly programs and, and, and really emphasize client satisfaction. We want, to, talk, we want to, to, to treat them in a manner that's consistent with their problem. If they have problems like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, secondary to childhood sexual abuse, then we're going to focus on that. Uh, but the key is that uh, our program is probably 25% uh, the cost of some of the other programs. That is, that is so encouraging. You know... Alcohol addiction and narcotic addiction knows no socioeconomic status. It affects all families equally. I'm sure that most of our listening audience knows someone or of someone or has a family member who either abuses or is addicted to either alcohol or narcotic medication. Explain to our listening audience how they might begin to identify a family member who might be having an issue with abuse or addiction? Well, there would, there would be changes in personality. There would be more absenteeism from employment. Uh, there would be probably um, less... Uh, interaction with family members, social isolation, um, and erratic behaviors like disappearing for periods of time, probably to score drugs, as they say. Um, 
there there are a whole bunch of emotional and, and behavioral changes that are seen in the population. I just um, finished talking with the editor of uh, an important, I think, publication for addiction. And she told me that uh, nine years ago, her son committed suicide and, and she had no idea that he used opiates. So sometimes it's very subtle. Um, I know that there was another celebrity who just lost a child and, and was unaware of the fact that he, the son was using at college. Um, there may be signs, and I just ran down a list of some things like, you know, the changes in personality, behavior, you know, asking for to borrow money because they need to, to, to buy drugs. Um, but it may not be that obvious is what I'm trying to say. So we, many of us have seen that show intervention, you know, where they present a, an addicted patient who's, you know, completely out of control and the family all conspires with uh, a treatment center to get the person to go typically against their will. Um, what does that look like without patient treatment? I mean, you, you people, people, I assume that people coming to you want to be there what what can a what can a listener do when they have a family member who may not have admitted that there's a problem but yet a, a treatment center like yours is so uh, so doable what what does somebody do I guess they can come talk to us and we'll try to convince them I I think there's enough out there now that's written uh, and uh, you can uh, you know, decide for yourself, but it's hard. I mean, I don't believe in like families forcing people into rehab anyway. The, the rate of success is so low. If someone isn't committed to, to, to sobriety and abstinence, they're not going to do well in any program. I mean, our program, people say, well, how can you send people at home while they're detoxing? Or how can you, isn't that a huge risk? You're, taking away someone's cell phone and locking the door doesn't make for for recovery. That's Recovery is, is a state of mind, you know? And, and the first thing you have to do is treat the brain disorder and then deal with, like, the patient's feelings. Um, I, I, I just... You can incarcerate someone for two years, and the first phone call they'll make is to their dealer. Well, you're certainly one of my heroes by coming on the show. I want you to be other people's heroes. If they want to get a hold of you, have alternatives for you, share your number with us. Uh, it's uh, 561-337-8885. And and for someone that might be really reluctant to even talk about it, is, is it just like a private practice, like a doctor's office? You're going to walk in and be greeted and respected as a person? Oh, seeking... of course. Um, we, we'll have staff there 24-7. And uh, if uh, people want to come down and talk with us, we're, we would be more than willing to do that, especially during the daytime. And how can doctors like Dr. Leanne and, and myself handle these problems without the support of individuals like you? Hey, Everybody your... doesn't have a Dr. Bushema. That's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you have to find someone who understands um, why addiction is addiction like what does it involve what do i have to do now that we've identified the problem and you 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 make the commitment to treatment and if the if the clinician you're with is is the appropriate one who'll make the arrangements for you to have a, a comprehensive approach to your problem I think you'll see treatment is changing very, very quickly in this field, and it will for the next few years until we start to get it right. Drug crisis worsening? Uh, there were less uh, overdoses in 2018 than there, were, than there was in the year prior to that. 2016 was the worst. But fentanyl is still so dangerous. 
So thank you so much for everyone who uh, joined us on our show today. We really can't say enough about uh, your beautiful handling of a topic that is so difficult. And um, I really appreciate your time here on the show. Everyone, this was Dr. Charles Buscema. I'm Dr. Leanne Talton here with Dr. Ira Perlstein. This was Paradox. And uh, we can't wait for you all to join us next week. You've been a marvelous guest. Next week, ENT. Oh. Ears, nose, and throat. Used to be eyes, ears, nose, and throat. Now it's just ears, nose, and throat. Title of the show, Boogers and Snot and All That's Not. You can, that's Ira's. That's uh, yes. Ira's the head title maker here. I thank, take no responsibility. Thank you again for joining us. And everyone, thank you for joining us for Paradox.